What does it mean to believe? Many of us grew up uh, reciting a creed, the Apostles' Creed, that starts off with, we believe. What does that mean? The Apostles' Creed I, I learned when I was going through a kind of a confirmation thing, and uh, it, it centers on, on the person of Jesus Christ, and it talks about some aspects of him that we want to affirm. And so it says, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The next line has created some controversy. Some have uh, ignored it. Some have altered it. We're just going to go past it this morning because that's a story for another day. But then it takes up again and says, on the third day, he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And then it goes on to talk about some other aspects of the Christian faith. Creeds like that are, are helpful summaries of Christian doctrine. But what does it mean to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty and go on through the rest of that creed? What does it mean to say, I believe? Can you recite the words of that creed and still be lost? Can you believe the words of that creed and still be lost? How many of us know people who say, I grew up reciting those words and then I got to college and found I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and I found life in him? So, what does it mean then to believe? We're going to look at a passage in John's gospel today that uses the word believe a lot. So let's take a look at that passage. And as we read it, think about what this word believe is saying here. Uh, it's John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. If you need a Bible, we've got some guys that have them. So uh, just catch their attention. And uh, in these Bibles that we're passing out, it's on page 750. Otherwise, John chapter 12, starting at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. 
Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. When I was studying this passage this week, I kept seeing this word believe. It shows up several times, and I got to thinking, how do we understand that word? What does it mean to believe? So I looked the word up online to see how it's used in common speech, and the idea that, that is out there is one of feeling certain that something is the truth or that someone is telling you the truth. And so the way we use this word in our culture is essentially the word believe is a head thing. In the Bible, though, it's more of a heart thing. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing. In our text for today, we're going to find John uses this word believe throughout the passage, and I believe it, it ties in with what he declares as his purpose statement for writing this gospel right at the end of, of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of John's writing. He wants people to believe. What does that mean? What's that getting at? Well, he uses this same word, believe, seven times in this section that we're looking at today. And I want to zero in on three of those uses. Wouldn't believe, verse 38. Many believed, verse 42. And whoever believes, verse 44. So let's take them in turn. First, wouldn't believe. We're talking here about a lack of faith. Look at verses 37 to 41 again. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. 
Look at, at, at verse 37 again. It, it blows my mind. Does it blow your mind? Uh, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. So we've got Jesus performing miraculous signs in the people's presence. He, he's doing it personally. He's doing it himself. Uh, these miracles John calls signs because they testify to who he is, uh, the incarnate Son of God, and still they won't believe. Does that make you feel a little less like a failure in sharing your faith? I had a brother-in-law who was a pretty proud atheist, and uh, back in the Jesus movement, uh, he loved to argue with me. We would debate uh, Christianity, and he would not be moved. And so sometimes a friend or two of mine would join in, and we'd, we'd just, he kind of considered it sport. And uh, I remember a friend of mine said to him once, if Jesus came into the room and took you by the hand and walked you over to the cemetery and personally raised every dead body in that cemetery, would you believe? And he thought about it for a second and said, nah, this would not be moved. It would take more than our attempts at persuasion to move him. It would take the work of the Holy Spirit. He does in hearts what we cannot do. And I'm thankful that before the end of his life, the Holy Spirit did move in him. He came to trust in Christ. And I remember him telling me he wished he had done it a lot sooner. We may look at this passage and be amazed at the people's unbelief. How can you have Jesus right in front of you doing these miraculous signs and still not believe? It may surprise us, but it didn't surprise God that these people didn't believe. John quotes two key passages from the prophet Isaiah to point out that their unbelief actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Both passages point to Jesus, and yet they are still unconvinced. So I want to take you to uh, the book of Isaiah, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because uh, we just need to see this. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, turn to the book of Isaiah. If you have a hard time finding it, just kind of go to the middle of the Bible and Psalms. Okay, so just turn right, and the next big book you come to will be Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 53, key passage in terms of the mission and ministry of Jesus. He is portrayed here as the suffering servant, uh, the one who gives his life for, uh, for uh, the salvation of humankind. Isaiah 53. Let's just look at it. You'll see some, some phrases here that will sound really familiar. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is where John starts in terms of getting our attention on, John 50, or on Isaiah 53. And then it speaks about this one. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Who is he talking about? Verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the mission of Jesus to bear our sin, our iniquity. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He took our sins. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will grant him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just see the life and ministry of Jesus all over over that passage. There are a few places in the Old Testament that lay it out that clearly. And John takes us straight there in John chapter 12. And yet, how does he start it? Who has believed our message? Pointing out that even though people knew this passage, they refused to believe in Jesus. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. And so flip just a few pages back to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll start at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Notice in the text there the word Lord. The L is capitalized, the O-R-D are small letters. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is Adonai. It, it means um, master, Lord. So he's saying, I, I saw the Lord. I, I saw someone who I would acknowledge as master. But then he goes on to describe him. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Uh, the length of a train designated the importance of a person. If a person wore a train on his robe that was six feet long, that was, that was pretty impressive. If it was 12 feet long, even more impressive. How long is the train of his robe here? It fills the temple up one aisle and down the other, stacked on itself up to the ceiling. Above him were seraphim, these angelic beings, uh, Amazing would, would blow your mind if you ever saw one. The, uh, the word in Hebrew means burning ones. It's, it's almost a personification of lightning. If, if lightning came flashing through this room, it would, it would knock us flat. These are amazing creatures. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces so they wouldn't look upon this one who was on the throne. With two, they covered their feet to cover up their, their earthly orientation. And with two, they flew. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when the Hebrew language wants to show something intensely, it repeats it. So this one is not just holy. He is not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Incredibly, infinitely holy. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Imagine the scene. And Isaiah says, woe to me. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Look at the word Lord there. It's all in capitals there. It is the holy name of God that Jews would not pronounce. Whenever they came across that word in the text, they would pronounce the other word for Lord, Adonai, instead of uttering the holy name of God because our lips are not worthy to utter that name. So who does Isaiah see in verse 1? He says, I saw the Lord, the master, and his conclusion at the end of it is, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty, God himself. In looking at this one on the throne, he has seen God. And what does John say about that? In chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. These two passages from Isaiah point straight to Jesus. These were passages that Jesus' Jewish audience would have been familiar with, and yet the people still don't believe in him. Despite convincing proofs, some people remain unconvinced. And the problem isn't with their understanding. The problem is with their willingness to respond. Again, believing is not just a head thing. It's a heart thing. And here again, we see the interplay of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. These people wouldn't believe but God wasn't surprised. My wife had an aunt who was very well educated, very well read, very well traveled, and never wanted to speak about spiritual things. We would try to have spiritual conversations with her, and 
She just would not go there. And uh, toward the end of her life, she asked me if I would do her funeral. And I said, what do you want me to say? What, what can I say at your funeral? What, what hope can I point to? And she said, I am a double predestinarian Presbyterian. We sort of explain that a little bit. God is going to do with me what he wants to do with me, and there's nothing I can do about it. He has either elected me for salvation or for damnation, and there's nothing I can do about that. I'm a double predestinarian Presbyterian. What she failed to understand is that God's sovereignty doesn't mitigate our responsibility. God is sovereign. He has uh, spoken in terms of who will respond. We still are responsible for our response to him. Jesus invites us to respond, but some wouldn't believe. That's the first one, those who wouldn't believe, a lack of faith. But then he goes on in verses 42 and 43 to speak about another group where he says many believed. Many believed, and what we're talking about here is imperfect faith. These are people who believe, but their faith is faltering. We see it falter. Look at them in verses 42 and 43. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Imperfect faith. They believed, but they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. So they were timid. They, they held back. They didn't acknowledge their faith publicly. They were under tremendous pressure. Same thing happened to the man born blind in chapter 9 we looked at a few weeks ago. They threw him out of the synagogue because he followed Jesus. And so there were some leaders, people who were in leadership, Sanhedrin members, who believed in Jesus but were afraid to admit it. When I read this, I think of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, and yet he was bold enough to, uh, to inquire of Jesus, came to Jesus at night. I think it was because he didn't want to be seen coming to Jesus. And Jesus talked with him about being born again. It, it tweaked his, his thought. It made him uh, want to go deeper to know more. There's a scene in The Chosen. It's, it's a wonderful scene. It's after this, this point in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus wants to follow. And so uh, he uh, hears that Jesus and the 12 are going to be meeting at a certain place. And, and he goes there, but he stays hidden. He's just kind of hiding around a corner and looking in on them. And and they're wondering why Jesus is, is waiting to leave from there. It seems there's something or someone he's yet waiting for. And finally, they, uh, they decide, okay, it's time, time to go. 
And we see Nicodemus watching them leave that place, and he breaks down and cries because he didn't have the courage to go with them. There are actually three places in John's gospel where we see Nicodemus. The first is in chapter 3 where he comes to Jesus at night and learns what it means to be born again. And we see faith beginning to dawn in his life. The second time we see him is in chapter 7. And in that chapter, uh, the uh, temple guard has just come back empty-handed after being sent out to capture Jesus and bring him back. And the leaders say, why didn't you bring him back? And they say, well, no one has ever spoken like this man has spoken. And they uh, come down hard on these temple guards. And Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus in that moment and says, don't we listen to someone before we decide on uh, what they're about? And then they come down hard on him as well. But I think we're seeing a timid faith, a faith that is growing, a faith that is beginning to step out. The final time we see Nicodemus is in chapter 19 of John's gospel. Jesus has just been crucified. He has died. And Nicodemus boldly asks for his body. It would be a crossing of a line for him. It would be bold faith in action. Imperfect faith, but growing faith. We can sympathize with people whose faith is weak because we're often there ourselves. And when we see weak or imperfect faith, what we want to do is to fan into flame that little spark so that it, it grows. But ultimately, the question is going to come down to what Jesus says in verse 43, they love human praise more than praise from God. Hard words, but words that remind us we will face pressure ourselves. Maybe nothing like the pressure that these leaders were facing and being kicked out of the synagogue. You think about that. I, I can't think of anything that compares in our culture. Uh, ours is a secular culture. If someone is, is under discipline from one church, they can just go to another one or they can chuck church altogether. These people lived in a culture where church and state were, were fused together. To be kicked out of the synagogue is to be kicked out of, of uh, the life of the community. We'll face pressure. We'll be tempted to cave. And we need to examine the same question for ourselves that they we're facing, where do we want to get our affirmation? Do we want to get it from people or do we want to get it from God? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this in verses 32 and 33, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And in Luke chapter 21, he says something similar. He tells us of the kind of pressure we can anticipate. He says, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors 
and all on account of my name. He goes on to talk in that passage about being betrayed by family members, even being put to death, but he encourages us to stand firm and win life. Where will we get our affirmation? Will we get it from people or will we get it from God? So some wouldn't believe theirs was a lack of faith. Some believed, though it was an imperfect faith. And then the third group, whoever believes, Jesus says in verses 44 to 50, he's speaking about a personal faith. He speaks here about what happens when anyone believes in him. Some won't. Some will respond in weak faith, but Jesus invites us into a personal faith in him. In the verses that follow, Jesus describes what that personal faith looks like. Three things. First, personal faith chooses relationship over religion. I don't know about you, but I get uncomfortable when people use the word religion to talk about Christianity. Um, Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Uh, Christianity is God stepping into our world to reach us. It's about a relationship with the living God made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father to us so that we can have a relationship with him. It's much more than religion. In chapter 14 of John's gospel, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus gives us access to the Father so that we can live in relationship with him. Personal faith chooses relationship over religion, so choose relationship. Personal faith also chooses light over darkness. Look at verse 46. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. We start in darkness, but we don't need to stay there. Jesus is the light that gives life. This is a constant theme that runs throughout John's gospel. When we choose Jesus, we choose light over darkness. But it's not just one and done. We face daily choices between darkness and light. We're constantly facing the temptation to choose darkness. And every time we choose it, it gets easier to choose darkness next time as well. But the same is true of the light. When we choose to walk in the light, it becomes easier to choose light again and again. John, in his first letter, is going to say this in 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We walk daily in the light. Personal faith chooses light over darkness. Choose light. Finally, personal faith chooses trusting obedience over empty words. We trust in what Jesus says and we act on what Jesus says. Instead of just Using lip service, we follow through. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, 
there's going to be judgment coming as the rest of that paragraph spells out. But here's the idea. We need to both hear his words and keep them. We need to hear them and live accordingly. He'll say it again in chapter 14 and verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. In uh, Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We need to hear and obey. Personal faith chooses trusting obedience over empty words. Choose trusting obedience. John states the purpose of his gospel at the end of chapter 20, it says, These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's it mean to believe? That, I think, is what this part of chapter 12 is all about. I mentioned this before, but uh, let me return to three Latin words that can help us. If I can get these chairs apart. I think they're ganged in such a way that you've got to go at this side. All right, so three words. And the first word is the Latin word noticia. Uh, we get our word notice from that word. We notice the chair. We can agree this is a chair. Uh, the second word is a census, uh, which we get our English word ascent to go up a level. It, it is an, a level up from noticia. Uh, it is to uh, have a, a mental ascent to a particular truth. This is a chair. I, I can agree that it is a chair. I can agree that it is sturdy enough to hold my weight. And that brings us to the third word, and that word is fiducia. Uh, we get our word fiduciary from that word. We entrust our money to a fiduciary to invest it on our behalf. We entrust our life to a Savior who forgives us and gives us relationship with God. Saving faith is not just a matter of noticing things with our mind, agreeing with them, but rather... I notice the chair, I agree that it would hold my weight. And Fiducius says, I will entrust myself to it. So we entrust ourselves to the Savior who can forgive us and give us a relationship with the living God. This is a tape measure from Menards. 14 inches. 14 inches, the distance from my head to my heart. Some people are going to miss heaven by 14 inches. They've got a head knowledge of who Jesus is. They could recite the words of the creed. They haven't responded with their heart. And they're going to miss heaven by 14 inches. What's your response to the Lord Jesus? 
You can affirm all kinds of things about him, about his ministry, about what he did, but until you have a heart response to him, you're lost. So I want to just invite us all to pray together for a moment and examine our own hearts before the Lord. Father, we've heard your word. We have heard the truth of your word. We recognize that these are the words of eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that we would not just let it reside in our heads, but find its way to our hearts, that our heart response to you would be one that says, Lord Jesus, you are that amazing king seated on the throne that Isaiah saw, the one who is worthy of all honor, and I look at the magnificence of that picture and I recognize how far short I fall. And like Isaiah, I am undone. And yet, you remedy that. You touch us, you restore us, you forgive us because of what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross for us. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that needs to make that their heart response, that person would say right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and live enthroned there forever. Forgive me my sin and live in me and let me live a life that responds to you in grateful obedience for all you have done for me. And so, Father, I just pray, move mightily among us. Do hear what we can't do for ourselves. Touch and transform hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.